1: more of what you want to hear from the week that was. Ontario's latest vaccination policy requires hospitals and other high-risk settings to have policies which the vast majority already do and to require frequent testing of employees who won't take the vaccine. This is already in place in, for instance. Toronto's University Health Network, and it's been in effect in long-term care for quite a while. Libby discussed with UHN CEO Dr. Kevin Smith and others.
2: What we put in place, I think, in large part informed the government uh, through the Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Moore, and it's been very successful at UHN since its, its uh, inception. Um, it, we're at about 94% vaccine compliance with obviously um, sort 6 of to 7% of people not yet vaccinated. Uh, a small portion of those who would be medically contraindicated for vaccination, but each of those now compliant with our every 48 hours before your shift, you need to be self-swabbing, doing a point-of-care test. If the point-of-care test is positive, don't come to work. Go and get a full PCR test. And I'm really happy to say that it's been very, very successful to date.
3: How many people are on that regime?
2: About 950 at the moment. So, um, you know, more than I would like to see. I just also remind you and your your, uh, listeners that the um, directive put out by Dr. Moore yesterday was the minimum standard. And UHN, for example, our first priority, our motto is the needs of patients come first. So each organization, long-term care, hospitals, schools, the list goes on, we each have the capacity to say our risk is greater and we're going to go farther than this minimum standard that Dr. Moore enunciated. And I, I, for one, am pleased about that because, you know, Princess Margaret Hospital, Canada's leading cancer center, is quite different than maybe a small hospital in rural Ontario. And I appreciate having the flexibility to look at those environments, risk assess those environments, talk to our staff and look at whether we're going to go farther than
4: that minimum standard.
3: I'd like to welcome Dr. Nathan Stahl, who is in geriatrics and internal medicine at Sinai Health, and he is also seeking the Ontario Liberal Party nomination for Toronto St. Paul's, and Dr. Neely Kaplan-Murr, who is an Ottawa-based family physician and a medical anthropologist who writes about health policy and politics. You heard Kevin Smith say it's a good start, and he's taken it to mean that hospitals and other high-risk settings can go further. Why is that not enough?
5: Well, I think we've seen, you know, let's be clear, Libby, like, if you're talking about long-term care here, nothing actually changes from yesterday. Exactly, Um, yes. And in the face of that policy, and, and, you know, long-term care workers have been vaccinated or started to be vaccinated since last December, we have seen outbreaks in long-term care, and we've seen deadly outbreaks. So, you know, when we're talking about our frail, older adults and other vulnerable populations, I don't think we should be giving, you know, we should be making exceptions for that. We should be putting patients and residents first. And this is not a mandatory vaccination policy. Uh, mandatory vaccination policy. This is, you know, there are many individuals who are going to be able to continue working without vaccination. And, you know, I, I don't think that downloading it onto homes and, and making them, you know, fight the ensuing battles that may occur with unions and legally is the fair thing to do. We need leadership on this issue to protect our vulnerable populations.
6: Nobody has the right to put others at risk. And we know that like as physicians, when we started medical training, we had to prove that we had been immunized against measles and mumps and rubella and hepatitis. And there was no, there was no, oh, well, if you prefer not to, that's okay. We don't mind you putting patients at risk. It Mm -hmm. was, this is what's required. And so we did what was required. This is a situation where the COVID vaccine should be mandated, just as universities are right now mandating vaccine. You want to study on campus, you want to work on campus, you have to be vaccinated. It's not enough to leave it up to individuals to decide whether or not they're going to put others at risk. And we know that the Um, people who are unvaccinated are the ones who are going to drive the fourth wave. That is going to be squarely on the shoulders of the leaders who refuse to have the courage to mandate vaccines.
1: Dr. Neely Kaplan-Mirth, an Ottawa-based family physician and medical anthropologist who writes about health policy, Dr. Nathan Stahl, a geriatrician who's seeking the nomination for the Ontario Liberals in the riding of Toronto St. Paul's, and University Health Network CEO, Dr. Kevin Smith. This is UMA Radio's Best to Fight Back. I'm Bob Comsick for Jane Brown. Will the surprise outcome in the Nova Scotia election influence the federal vote? Libby posed that question to forum research pollster Lauren Bozanov, and conservative strategist Jason Leader.
7: You know, our final release said liberals and Tories neck and neck in upcoming Nova Scotia provincial election, so it, it was somewhat uh, forecast, but the, the strange thing was the quickness of the change in public opinion, and it, it did occur right on the last few days uh, of the campaign. I think that's what took everybody by surprise, was the quickness of the change. And, and, and you know, because the parties were so close and, and because the change was just a couple of points with the, you know, first past the post-voting system, you can get a majority from that.
3: Jason, do you agree that that's what happened?
7: Most of what Lawrence said, I agree with actually. So, so
4: I've got a little bit of a window into this because two of my colleagues were out there helping run the campaign, and I I just think it's just an incredible result. And a lot of it, I think, is testament to Tim Houston. I mean, that guy's that guy's going to be a political force for quite some time. So, most of what Lawrence said, I agree with. So, um, the internal polling, and this is first of all, I will say to, to Lawrence's point, a couple of pollsters. This came pretty close. You know, I didn't see four, I didn't see your last numbers, Lauren. Main Street, I think, added added as well in the same ballpark, sort of a neck and neck within a couple of points race. The Tories knew in the target seats, um, that they were within a couple of points about 10 to 15 days ago. So halfway through the campaign, they knew this, they were sort of gaining on the Liberals and it was going to be a close race. So I do disagree with the contention that it changed over sort of overnight. I, I will say that, um, nobody thought, um, that that sort of four or five point swing in the last week was likely, and everyone was worried from the conservative perspective anyway, that the Liberals were going to do a lot better job of getting the people out, because that's historically what's happened in Nova Scotia. So I think Lawrence mostly got it right. I would just say that from a Tory perspective, they really thought that they were probably going to win a minority parliament where they were really going to be close, like it was going to be 2018 20, uh, they ended up winning a couple more than that, so um, and and you know it was just a tremendous night for the North Nova Scotia Tories.
3: Lauren, I mean, uh, do you, what do you what do you make of it?
7: Well, you know, we did do a final poll, and it was with it well within the margin of error, we're only one or two points off. Um, but just remember that uh, with this political system that we have, first past the post, if you can edge out by even one or two points um you can get a majority government and in in the end it looks like the you know the Tories beat the Liberals by 2%. You wouldn't think that would give you a majority but it does if it's evenly you know distributed across the province. So I think that that's part of the story here.
3: Again this was just completely unexpected and Jason do you think that this will uh you know inform anything that happens with the current election? <laughs> well, it's certainly
4: not the headline that Mr. Trudeau was looking for this morning uh, when he called this election a couple of days before the, the Nova Scotia vote. So just a couple of things. Let's, let's just be clear on this, So, I think it's important to say, first of all, Justin Trudeau is going to win the majority of the votes in Nova Scotia in the federal election to be held a month from now. And he's going to win most of the seats in Nova Scotia as well. So let's just get that clear, because um, there will be people that sort of mistake the two. It's, it's different for a lot of different reasons. We don't have time for that, but that's what's going to happen. But I will say this, Mr. Trudeau had sort of hoped for some wind in his sails. He had hoped for another liberal sort of premier to be re-elected. He had hoped that this streak of essentially incumbent governments being re-elected um, uh, would, would happen. This narrative is sort of like now you got people other people in Canada sort of looking and saying, Oh, I guess we can replace the government, <laughs> you know? And and the truth is he hasn't had such a hot first couple of days here. He's a little bit sort of stuck in the mud. And so you know, you start to look at you know, are we going to have a three-way race here federally? And I, I actually think we are. I think Mr. O'Toole and Mr. Singh um, have a little bit of momentum. I think Mr. Mr. Trudeau is sort of flash you know sort of floundering around a little bit. So we're going to get a, a pretty tight three-way race, I think by the end of this thing.
1: Conservative strategist Jason Leader and pollster Lauren Bozanoff, president and CEO of Forum Research. I'm Bob Komsik for Jane Brown, and this is Zuma Radio's Best to Fight Back. Coming up after the break, the Provincial PC Party's controversial invoice-style fundraising tactic. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of
0: Fight Back on Zuma Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Bob Komsik
1: on Zuma Radio. Welcome back. This is uma Radio's Best to Fight Back. I'm Bob Komsik for Jane Brown. Ontario's PCs are apologizing for sending a letter to supporters that asked for donations on a form that resembled an invoice. The Tories say they didn't intend to mislead anyone. Doug Ford has not commented on the controversial correspondence, but is said to be angry. Opposition parties have called for investigations, including a police probe. The party says in a statement that it regrets the correspondence, that it went out to a limited number of supporters, including Greg Geese of Kingston, who joined Libby along with the Liberals consumer affairs critic, Stephen Blay.
8: It was Quite shocking, actually, that a political party would stoop to such a low level to try to to raise money uh, from their from their supporters. You know, we've seen a lot of scams during COVID trying to do, take advantage of the most vulnerable people as they've uh, been home and been in some of the, the most difficult financial situations of their lives. But really, this is an all time uh, new low. Unfortunately, though, it fits into a well-established pattern of conservative deceit uh, tactics and, and dirty tricks. If you look at the return, the return mailing address on the invoice is actually the same address that's associated with a conservative vendor uh, who is behind the robocall scandal uh, that people might remember. And so this is, um, unfortunately, they've gone back to their old uh, dirty tricks. uh, Yeah, I'm uh, seeing that it is,
3: it's the responsive marketing group and uh, that the conservatives, this is something sent out by the NDP They paid them almost $1.1 million for fundraising and uh, other amounts for outreach or what they called outreach. So this was a a fundraising thing. Now, it was reported that off the record, Doug Ford is really ticked off by this. Uh, Is it, in your opinion, possible that this went out from the party without him signing off on it?
8: I don't think that the leader is necessarily signing off on every uh, tiny piece of uh, detail that happens within a within a political organization. But at the end of the day, the leader is responsible for everything that the political organization, the politi- political party does. You have to hire vendors if you're hiring vendors uh, that have a good moral compass, that are going to uh, not only abide by what is uh, actually in the law, but abide by what everyone believes to be, Uh, in good taste and of high moral standing. I think it's pretty clear that this uh, mailer was intended to uh, make the person receiving it believe that they owe the Progressive Conservative Party uh, money uh, in an attempt to get money from them for their fundraising. Uh, It's clearly deceitful. uh, And unfortunately, it's just one more uh, piece of evidence that uh, Doug Ford's Conservative Party is reverting to those dirty tricks of Stephen Harper's Conservatives.
3: Okay, hang on. Let us bring in Greg Geese, and he received one of those letters. When did you get the letter, and and what did you make of it?
9: Uh, The letter arrived on Tuesday. Well, it had in big red letters important invoice enclosed under the PC logo, and uh, as I was opening it, I said to my wife, this is going to be good. (laughs) And uh, I opened it up, and sure enough, it was formatted as an invoice that I owed money to uh, the Progressive Conservative Party.
3: So, How much did you uh, owe them?
9: $800.
3: Wow. Was that the amount wow. of your last donation, if I may ask? I'm not really sure, to be honest with you. I haven't
9: donated uh, money to the Progressive Conservative Party in Ontario for probably about a decade now.
3: Under federal law? The solicitations by mail regulations require anything that looks like an invoice but isn't to have a warning in bold face capital letters that the recipient is not required to pay. Stephen Blair, I mean, all of this is uh, pretty confusing.
8: It is very confusing, and, and I'm not a lawyer, but if, if, if the statement that you just read is, in fact, uh, what... Uh, needs to be followed when you're putting something to Canada Post, I imagine all these letters were delivered uh, by Canada Post. I think it really goes back to the kind of culture that Doug Ford and those around him create within the PC party. Um, they've hired a vendor who has a notorious track record of dirty tricks. You know, they got caught red-handed during the robocall scandal to the Stephen Harper's Conservatives uh, back in the day. They've, they've chosen to go with this vendor even after this history of dirty tricks. And guess what? They're playing dirty tricks again. It goes to the culture created in the organization uh, by the leadership of the organization. That goes right back to Doug
1: Ford. Liberals' consumer affairs critic Stephen Blay and Greg Geese of Kingston, who received one of the controversial PC Party donation mailouts that looked like an invoice. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Bob Comstock. The Ford government wanted to fast-track its environmental assessment for Highway 413, arguing it's needed in order to address congestion in the GTA and would connect Milton and Vaughan. Environmental groups asked Ottawa to intervene, and they agreed to assess the environmental impact of the planned project that would run through farmland, waterways, as well as Ontario's protected Greenbelt. Libby spoke with Frank Clayton, a senior research fellow with the Center for Urban Research and Land Development at Ryerson University, Todd Letts, CEO of the Brampton Board of Trade, as well as former Toronto Mayor David Crombie.
9: The federal government is going to carry out an environmental assessment to conclude by 2022.
3: Uh Uh-huh. And uh, are you satisfied with that?
9: Well, I'm willing to go with it, for sure. Uh, I I still... I mean, I, I've been against it for good and sufficient reason, but if people think there needs to be another environmental assessment, then I'm, that's, I guess that's okay, uh, if, if people need it for greater certainty.
3: Uh, Frank Clayton, uh, is that environmental assessment, uh, do you uh, agree with it, and do you think it will be as robust as many people believe it needs to be?
10: Well, I, first of all, don't believe the environmental assessment has to be as robust as maybe it is. The feds probably shouldn't be involved. But what I look at is that Metrolinx, the uh, transit uh, agency for the provincial government, uh, has projected over the next, up to the year, 2041, there's going to be a 50% increase in car trips at prime time, at rush hour prime times. Uh, that's even with all the billions of dollars of transit spending they're going to do. Two-thirds of the growth in the Toronto region. Are in the 905 areas, so we need more roads. Otherwise, there's going to be a tremendous increase in congestion. In fact, MetroLink estimates about a 100% increase in congestion over current levels. So we need more roads, and we need, uh, and the, so, and, and the trips are really east-west, and, and this is so this road is needed. So yes, you want to minimize environmental impact, but that shouldn't stop the road from being built because it's needed.
3: Todd Letts, uh, I gather that is the view of the Brampton Board of Trade as well.
11: Yeah, I mean, we represent uh, everything uh, from small business store owners to those managing uh, distribution centers and tech companies, food processors, you name it. And we're looking at it from both a planning and an economic context and and one of quality of life as well. You know, growth is going to happen. Brampton is a magnet for people. We welcome about 14,000 newcomers uh, every year. You multiply that across the GTA in the next 10, 10 years. We're going to have 1.2 million more people. Infrastructure investment just hasn't kept up. With citizens' expectations and uh, and neither have jobs, and uh, we see the highway as uh, an opportunity to address, uh, you know, the uh, quality of life for the 152,000 people that wake up every morning and have to drive outside of our city to uh, to, to find uh, work. So uh, this is uh, the highway. I think is a boost. Uh, I think the estimate is about a billion dollars annually to our GDP, and uh, you know, your, the context of the federal government's involvement. It it just just delays the job creation that Brampton uh, citizens so uh, so sorely need.
3: David Crombie, how do you respond to those arguments? Well,
9: uh, I think the municipalities, the larger municipalities en route and certainly around the area, uh, all oppose it. Um, uh, That's true of the city of Mississauga. uh, That's uh, true of the city of Vaughan, true of the city of Toronto Council. uh, I think Brampton Council as well, and certainly Brampton's. Uh, Vision 2040, which is a major planning uh, projection of, for their own, uh, they are depending on less car dependence, less car dependency, uh, and and b- more public transit. So the the ecological sustainability of of Hamilton, as well as its economic viability, is very much caught up in that 2040 document, and and the building of the of the 413 flies in the face of that. An independent review three years ago said it's not necessary. If you're looking to find solutions with highways, a more imaginative use of 407 is clearly in order. And finally, if you've got $8 billion to spend, I'm telling you that there's a a, a crying need for it in affordable housing, long-term care, green infrastructure, and climate change. And that would be, I think, what people might want to keep in mind
1: former Toronto Mayor David Crombie, Frank Clayton, Senior Research Fellow with the Centre for Urban Research and Land Development at Ryerson University, and Todd Letts, CEO of the Brampton Board of Trade. I'm Bob Komsic, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was in the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're
0: listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches
1: with the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick. Fight Back with Libby's Nimer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. Here are some of this week's best calls. Bruce from Guelph had these thoughts about Ontario's vaccination policy.
8: How do we know that that person is actually the one that's doing the swab? It could be another family member. It could be a friend. Come over to do it if they're seeing symptoms because they don't want to miss work. They don't want to miss pay. Also, it's every 48 hours within that 48 hours, they can contract it and, and spread it. And once it gets in the hospital, long-term care, wherever, you know how it's been spreading rapidly. You just mentioned some numbers there, which were astounding to me. So I think this is, is not right. It, It. you should be vaccinated. And I hate when people say mandatory. It's not mandatory to get vaccinated. It's mandatory to get vaccinated if you want to work in certain sectors like healthcare and education. Otherwise, go find another profession that's going to allow you to not be
1: vaccinated. David in Toronto also wanted to weigh in.
8: Perhaps
10: not for this pandemic, but for future future pandemics, as people go through for PSWs, doctors, nurses, whatever, as part of their accreditation, maybe they need to understand to achieve their accreditation that they will have to take whatever vaccines are required in the future. And if they are not able to, at that point in time, when they're going through their accreditation, they're given a bypass so that they can say, listen, I have this type of a medical condition and i can't take a vaccine so when people go into the profession you either know that they will have to take it or they are exempt
1: ron and guelph brought up the 407 when discussing the planned highway 413
11: the 407 is completely underutilized it was the one day i drove it from the 401 407 all the way out to the very end now The only time I saw any significant tractor trailers on this road, let alone cars, was from the 400 out to the 407 as the trucks were heading west. Now, my thought is if they want to get the trucks off the 401, cut down the pollution, the elephant in the room is why don't they offer tax subsidies if they won't at least take off the tolls
6: for the trucks?
1: Fred in Oakville also focused on the 407.
6: It's a complete fiasco, the, the fact that the 401 is, is jammed and the 407 is completely empty almost. And uh, Well,
3: the, the 407 costs a lot of money to use. It
6: does. And, and that's what's preventing so many other people from using it. And uh, that's where they need to really uh, make things right is to reduce uh, the amount of uh, tolls that are paid. It's crazy.
1: Dennis in Brampton opposes the proposed highway.
9: Just putting the environmental aspects of it aside, which have been adequately addressed, in my opinion, uh, that $8 billion, would that not be better spent on transit, which is what, from what I understand, is supposed to be the way of the future, particularly given the challenges of, of climate change? We know that parts of the 401 and known are the Veterans Highway. I would suggest if this road gets built, we should name it the Developers Highway. And now, Fight Back's Knockout Call
0: of
1: the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from CEDA in Mississauga, who called with her thoughts on the coming federal election and whether mandatory vaccination for some workers will be the biggest issue of the campaign.
12: This election is definitely about getting a majority government. And nothing is wrong with a politician leader to want to have this. But it's definitely the wrong time. COVID will be sending our country into the trillion. Taxpayers will have to pay for this forever. Um, Why spend time and money on an unwanted election when, when we could spend it on more pressing issue? So vaccine alone will not get my vote um we have natural disaster wildfire long term care cut taxes property taxes give us a break so people can own or stay in a home fund more medical research for stuff like Lyme disease fibromyalgia things that you don't hear about and health care all these things are more pressing and more important right now than wasting money on Adds an, an election.
1: That does it for this week's Best of Fightback on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us between noon and one weekdays. Or, if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca, follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby, and call our Fightback voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Bob Compsick for Jane Brown. Join us again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back.
0: The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zee Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham, executive producer Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air,